Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. It's a subject we don't like to talk about, so we rarely talk about it. But sooner or later, we have to deal with the subject of death. I don't mean our own death. I mean the death of someone near and dear to us. I suspect that most of us here have had a family member or a friend pass away, and we were confronted with the subject of death. The death of loved ones can be sudden, like an automobile accident where we weren't expecting it, and out of the blue, so to speak, someone we knew and loved was killed. I have personally conducted funerals for babies, children, and teenagers that nobody expected to die as they did. Or the death can be slow, can be the gradual deterioration of a terminal illness finally overtaken by death. Sir Walter Scott, the famous literary figure, wrote, And come he slow, or come he fast, it is but death who comes at last. And of course, there's that very famous statement by Benjamin Franklin that says, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, some people have figured out how to get around the taxes, but nobody has figured out yet how to get around the subject of death. Therefore, whether it comes slowly or suddenly, we all have to be confronted with the subject of death. My question is, when it comes, you need to know how to deal with it. So, how do you deal with the death of a loved one? particularly somebody very, very close to you. Well, we're going through the book of Genesis, and in this session we're going to deal with a death. It's interesting to me that there are many death notices in the Bible. We're told many times that somebody died. But those reports are usually brief. The one we're going to look at tonight is much more extensive. It is an extended description of what happened when somebody died. So I want us to look at this experience of Abraham and see what it contains that would apply to us. And there is some things here that apply to us today. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 23? Genesis chapter 23. Now, we'll quickly discover uh, this is the case where Sarah, Abraham's wife, died. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 23 says, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And verse 2 says, so she died. As you know, Sarah was Abraham's wife, they were very close. They'd gone through a lot together for a long time. 
and now we're told she dies. This whole chapter is about the death of Sarah, which is highly unusual in the scripture. I don't know of any other passage that goes into this much detail about the death and burial of somebody, perhaps with the exception of Jesus in the Gospels, but that's an entirely different situation. What, in this, what happens in this passage is Abraham does basically three things. And it's those three things I want us to lay out very clearly. It's what he did and what we will go through and need to be prepared to go through, one of these things of which is deeply significant. But let me back up and just start with the fact that Sarah died. When her son Isaac was born, from what we can piece together from the book of Genesis, she was about 90 years old. Later, when he was offered uh, as a sacrifice, and then the Lord provided a substitute, and so he wasn't sacrificed, it is estimated that she was somewhere between 108 and 110 years old. Those who study the book of Genesis in detail decided that when she died, Abraham was 137 years old, and Isaac was 37 years old. Now, what is significant is that verse 2 says this, she was in the land of Canaan that she died. So she was in the land. Please notice that. It is deeply significant that is pertaining to the whole chapter, and for that matter, the whole book of Genesis. She was in the land. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that um, Sarah is a very important woman in the Bible, uh, and for a whole bunch of reasons. The Lord promised Abraham that he was going to bless him, give him the land, and bless the whole world through him, meaning the Jewish people. Sarah was a part of that because Abraham had a wife, uh, a son, I should say, by a, uh, a handmaid, Hagar, and God said, no, I mean, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son. It's going to come through your wife, Sarah. So on just that level, Sarah is an important individual in all of the Bible. But there's other reasons why she's important. She uh, was a woman of faith. The book of Hebrews makes that very clear, that she, like Abraham and others, were people of faith. And then there's another reason, one that doesn't often get a lot of attention. In 1 Peter, Peter tells wives who are married to unbelievers how they can have an impact on their unbelieving husbands. And what he says, in essence, is, don't preach to them. Uh, it's assuming now that they know the gospel. Don't harass them. Don't badger them. Don't preach to them. But they will be one uh, without a word, he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, by the way you live. And part of that is that you be a obedient and submissive wife. Now, I know that's not politically correct today, but it's Bible. And Sarah, then, gets in, mentioned in this passage. 
For it says, In this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Boy, I don't think of, I can't think of anything more not politically correct than that. <laughs> but that's what the scripture says. And that, so Sarah is the mother, so to speak, of women of faith and women who were submissive and obedient to their husbands. So she's a very important person in the scripture. So, this passage simply tells us she died. Now look at verse Two again, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. All right, I said this passage tells us three things that Abraham did, and this is the first. He came to mourn and he wept for her. Now, that's an interesting way to say this. He came to mourn. That implies that he wasn't there when she died. He might have been out in the field. He might have been in some other town. So when he came back, he found out that she had died, and that is when he began to mourn. That also, if that's the case, and it seems to be from the text, then that implies that she did not die of a long terminal illness. We don't have any information on how she died. But this seems to imply that it was sudden and that it wasn't as a result of some prolonged illness because if that were the case, he probably would have stayed with her. So, I just want you to look at the latter part of verse 2. He came to mourn and he came to weep. The word mourn means just that. The Hebrew word means to lament, to mourn. But one author suggests that this word includes talking, which I found very interesting. He talked about her, and he wept. So, Sarah died, and the first thing Abraham did was grieve. When those who we love die, what we need to do is grieve. Now, that is a huge subject. Everybody has their own way of grieving. Every society has its way of grieving. I see on television sometimes the way they grieve in other places, and it strikes us we would never do that here. Every culture has its own custom of how you grieve somebody's death. And every individual within our culture has their own way of doing it. Having said that, throwing out the disclaimer, let me also say that it's very healthy normal and natural to cry, that that's, that's a good thing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we grieve, but not as others who have no hope. So just because we as Christians have hope of a future in heaven with the Lord doesn't mean that we don't grieve, and it doesn't mean that we don't cry. Notice the text says, he wept. This grown man broke down and sobbed over the loss of his wife. That, I submit to you, is a very natural, normal, 
healthy way to handle bereavement. Just sit down and have a good cry. But if the word mourn involves talking, maybe, maybe we should say it's a good idea to talk. Uh, I think that probably should be put on the table. I personally don't think it's absolutely essential that everybody talk. I certainly don't think you should force them to talk. Everybody grieves their own way, and I concede that. At the same time, I think it's good that you talk. You need to talk and get it out. Uh, get the emotion out. And there is emotion as part of grieving. I wasn't planning on getting into all of this, but it just occurred to me, maybe I should at least mention it. Have you heard of the lady named Kubler-Ross? How many of you have ever heard of Kubler-Ross? Okay. Kubler-Ross, I think the name of the book is Death and Dying, uh, studied death and has come up with the steps of grief. And she has five. I have uh, read psychologists that have came up, come up with seven. Uh, when I talk to people who are going through this, I usually mention three. This is part of the natural, normal grieving process. The first thing that happens is denial. If I were to stand up here tonight and tell you that somebody we all know passed away, you first would, the first thing you would say is, oh, no. And you walk around in a little bit of denial. You just, you just don't want to face it. You don't want to think about it. You, you, it's just hard to accept. Even when you're expecting it, there is that form of denial. The second phase, and this is what I find as a pastor people really need to know, is guilt. People feel guilty. And that's where I think this text comes in when it says you ought to talk about it. And when I say they feel guilty, this is what I mean. When the person dies, they think, I wish I had said... I wish I had done. And they walk around feeling guilty over what they did not do. And they wish they had done before the person died. The third emotion, according to Kubler-Ross, and my experience observing people going through grief, and in my own personal case, is anger. You get angry. Uh, depending on the situation, you get angry at the person who died. They left you. There's an anger element that comes in here. And then there's eventually acceptance. I think Kubler-Ross's fourth step is negotiation. She's got that in there somewhere. And eventually you accept and put your life back together minus that person. The steps differ depending on who you're talking to. But this is what I know. Those steps are natural normal, real, and they happen, and you need to be prepared for that. That's what happens. I don't know how many times I've sat down with somebody who just lost a loved one, explained all this to them, and they came back later and told me that really helped. Now, when I say there's steps, I don't mean you step on the first one and you step on the second one and forget the first one, or you step on the third one and you don't go back through the, verse two, uh, the first two. That's not the way it happens. They come in waves. And you go 
through the first one and the second one, and the first one comes back and hits you. And then you go through the third one, and the first two come back and hit you. I grew up in Florida, and we used to go down to the beach, and they'd say, every seventh wave is the big one. Is that true in California? Did they say that here? Um, anyway, they did where I grew up. And uh, that's, the way, that's the way that emotion hits you. And, the every, and, and just when you think you're getting over it, bam, that seventh one hits you again, and you go through all the seven all over again. But what you need to know is Abraham wept and Abraham mourned. We don't know the details in his case, but we do know what is natural and what often happens in cases today. And I'm just simply saying, Abraham did it, and we need to do it too. So, it is normal, it is natural, it is the healthy thing to do. All right, that's two verses. If we move at that pace, we're going to be here till breakfast in the morning. So let me move to the rest of this passage. The next thing that happens is Abraham purchases a piece of property to bury Sarah on. That goes from verse 3 all the way through verse 18. Unbelievable that all of those verses are giving to just buying a burial plot. That is unparalleled to anything in the Bible. Why did the author of Genesis give that much space to the very fact that he simply bought a burial plot? If he lived in the 21st century, he'd gotten mail offering to sell you burial plots and probably phone calls and emails and text, who knows what all. Everybody wants to sell you a burial plot these days. But he spent all this time doing it, and the details are rather interesting. In the first place, it says in verse 3, he stood up uh, from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heath, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for the burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, what's going on here is he's, he's, a, he's a foreigner. He's a visitor. He didn't own any land. He had no place to bury her. So he goes to the owner of the city and the owner of all the property, and he says, um, give me property so that I can bury this person who has died. Now, what is significance about this is, where do you normally bury somebody if you are a visitor? If you took a trip and somebody died on that trip, would you bury them there or would you bring them back home? You'd bring them back home, right? Well, the fact that he says, I want property in the land, is saying, this is now home. Now we know from Genesis, he was from Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern Iraq, and he's in Palestine and saying, I'm home. This is the property the Lord gave me and my descendants, and I want to I want a piece of property to stay here. I'm going to stay here. This is home. So 
apart from any practical application to us, that is a critical point in this passage. So, um, they said to him, uh, verse 6, Hear, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Now, the local resident said to him, um, uh, they called him a mighty prince. The Hebrew text says a prince of God. So these pagans recognized that Abraham was a prince of God. Thought that was interesting. I also think it's interesting that he saw himself in verse 4 as a foreigner and a visitor. They saw him as a prince of God. He saw himself at the bottom of the social ladder. They saw him at the top of a spiritual ladder. So they recognized who he was in his relationship to the Lord. So they said, look, you can bury her in one of our places. We'll be happy. You can pick the spot. We respect you. Pick the spot. We'll let you use our cemetery. That's what's going on. Verse 7, Abraham uh, stood and bowed before the people of the, of the land. And he said, verse 8, uh, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give to me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give to me at the full price as property for the burial place among you. Now, you, you need to notice carefully a couple of things that's going on here. He asked for somebody to go deal with the owner. That's part of the custom. You've got a mediator to go negotiate the price. This might be something like saying you hire a realtor uh, or a cemetery or a mortuary person to uh, go negotiate the price for the cemetery plot. So that's part of what's going on. Also notice at verse 9 he says, I want the property at the end of the field. So he's not asking for one place. He's asking for uh, a, a rather little substantial part of the land. As a matter of fact, back in verse 4, he didn't say, I want a place to, to bury Sarah. He said, I want a place to bury my dead. He's anticipating other members of his family dying, and so he's wanting to buy a piece of property to bury them all. So he says, I want a piece at the end of his field, and I'm willing to pay full price for it. I don't want you to give me a bargain. I want to pay the full price for this piece of ground. Now, Ephron dwelt among the sins of Heath, and uh, Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of of the sons of Heath, and all they entered into the gate of the city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. 
I will give you the field. Now you need to note the text carefully. In verse 9, he says, I'll give you full price. In verse 11, they said, no, 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 no. We'll give you the field and the cave that's on it. Now, uh, I will give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I will give it to you that you may bury your dead. I need to explain another custom. They didn't mean it. They said, I'll give it to you, but that was the cue for you to say, no, 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 and now we start the negotiations. They had no intention of giving him this piece of land. So, uh, then Abraham bowed himself down to the people of the land. No, there it is again. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people and the land, saying, if you will give it to me, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. So he is saying, uh, no, I, I, I want to pay for it. I don't want you to give it to me as a gift. Now, he says, all right, verse 15, it's 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? 400 shekels. That's nothing. I mean, what's that? You know, that's not much. So just give me 400 shekels so that you can bury your dead. Now, let's talk about the 400 shekels. That was considerably more than the property was worth. Matter of fact, this little phrase, what's that between me and you, is an expression to say, well, that's a small amount of money. But it wasn't. As a matter of fact, later, many years later, Jeremiah paid 17 shekels for a whole field. David paid 600 gold shekels for the whole temple site, 35 acres. So to ask 400 shekels was really an exorbitant price. Uh, one commentator said the average field cost of, was four shekels per acre. Now, I should point out, we don't know this for absolutely certain, but the best guess is it was four shekels per acre. Could you bury your wife on an acre? Yeah. Could you bury some other people? Yeah. But he was asking 400 shekels instead of four. Uh, matter of fact, a whole garden cost uh, 40 shekels per acre. So 400 acres is way out of the norm. If the property of the value is inflated, then he's only doing what Orientals of that day did. Here was the process. First, they offered the object as a gift, not expecting the offer to be accepted. Then, giving a they gave a price. They said it's modest when it was actually exorbitant. Everyone understood that this was the starting point for the bargaining process, and they delighted in this little exercise with great delight. 
So that's what's going on here. They're haggling over the price. And Abraham is saying, I want uh, to pay you the full price. Now, verse 16, and Abraham listened, and he weighed out the silver, and which he had named in the hearing of all the people, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So he simply weighed out 400 shekels of silver. Now, by the way, you need to know, that's the, that was the currency of merchants, he says. There were no coins. Coins were invented later. This is roughly, very roughly, 2,000 years before Christ. Coins were not invented yet. Of course, paper money came even after that. So this is the currency of the day. That's the point of verse 16. And so he waited out. Verses 17 and 18 tell us, in essence, that they made a contract. Uh, it says uh, that he bought the field in uh, Machpelah, which was before Mamre. The field of the cave was in it, and all the trees were in the field, and these were within the surrounding boundaries, were deeded. Did you see the word deeded in verse 17? This is a legal contract. We got a deed to the property. The only other significant thing here is that it was before Mamre. Mamre is where Abraham lived. So he wanted this particular piece of property because it was right before where he lived. So he was going to be close by the cemetery of Sarah, so to speak. Now, before I go on, let me pause here for just a minute and point out something. From verses 3 down through verse 18, actually, uh, we're talking about him buying a piece of property. Verse 18 says, uh, Abraham was the possessor uh, before they went in at the gate of the city. That's like going to city hall. And they may have had a deed. This was a contract. So all of these verses are simply saying Abraham purchased a piece of property. So what? Why does the author of Genesis give so many verses to buying a piece of property to bury your wife? And the answer is, this is no ordinary transaction. This is an act of faith. God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I haven't gotten to Isaac and Jacob yet. We'll get there shortly. But he promised it to the patriarchs. And by burying Sarah and Abraham and planning to bury others, Abraham is in essence saying, and I believe the promise of God. That is what's going on in this passage of Scripture. But how can you be so dogmatic about that? And the answer is, I read the Bible. Not only Genesis, I read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says this is the kind of thing that was going on during this time. Hebrews 11.13 says, uh, 
These all died in faith. And if you read the verses prior to this, it's talking about Abraham and Sarah. Not having received the promise. When Sarah died, they hadn't received the land yet. That comes later. But having seen them from afar off, was assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. A direct reference to the, what Abraham said earlier in this passage. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm a foreigner. I'm a visitor. But God promised us this land, and I'm staying here. I'm burying my wife here because I believe the promise of God. Verse 14 of Hebrews 11. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had, if they had called to mind that country which they had come out of, they would have opportunity to return. But now they desire a better and a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, if they'd have thought about home, they'd have gone back to Mesopotamia. But they didn't do that. Why? Because Abraham believed that God was going to give him the land, and he buried his wife in the cave of Machpelah. Not the field, the cave of Machpelah. Uh, by the way, I should have inserted this somewhere. They sold him the whole field. Not part of it. And the reason for that is that the law at the time was that they'd have sold him part of it, they'd have had to pay taxes on the whole piece. So they sold him the whole thing. So they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. I'm telling you, this is as up to date as it gets, isn't it? Um, at any rate, uh, he buried her in the cave of Machpelah. If you go to Israel, and you go to Hebron, which I've done several times, you will discover the cave of Machpelah is still there. You will also learn, as you would if you just kept reading the Bible, that Abraham is buried there, Sarah is buried there, Isaac is buried there, Rebekah is buried there, Leah is buried there, and Joseph is buried there. All three patriarchs are buried on that spot. Now, they can't excavate it because it's under Muslim control, but the city, is under, as I recall, is under Jewish control. Uh, so there's a problem for archaeologists to get in there, but wouldn't that be fun if they could uh, dig into the cave of Machpelah? At any rate, what's going on here is Abraham purchased a piece of property for his wife to be buried in. I said there were three things he did. The first thing is he... You forgot that already, didn't you? He wept. He mourned. The second thing is he purchased a piece of property. The third thing is in verse 19. And after this... Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the third thing he did is he buried her. And notice it says, in the land. It would be fun to go home and read this chapter. Don't do it now. And just note how many times it says, in the land, in the land, in the land, in the land. That's what's going on here. It all has to do with the land God gave Abraham. All right, we're done. Funeral's over. She died. He mourned. He buried her. 
that the end of the story? All right, we have a reception. That the end of the story? Isn't that where you would normally end it? Sure, that's the end of the story. But it's not the end of this story. I want you to look at verse 20. So the field and the cave that it's, that it's in was deeded to Abraham. Was deeded. This story ultimately, is not about the death of Sarah. It's about the deed to Abraham. Because the point of this story has to do with the fact that God gave the land of Palestine to Abraham and he believed God. That is the spiritual point of this story. Granted, he buried Sarah, but the point is, the last line, it's not that he buried her. The last line is he got the deed to the property. For the first time, Abraham now owns a piece of property in the land. Interesting stuff. It's very important that you notice that the last thing that's said is he got a deed. If you want to destroy a good joke, give the punchline before you get to the end of the joke, right? The point of the joke is where? At the end of the joke. That's very often true in stories in the Bible. Uh, if I had time, I could demonstrate that. But very often, the point of the story is at the end of the story. And if you don't go all the way through the end, you don't quite get the point the author was trying to make. So you've got to go all the way through verse 20. And if you do that, the point becomes... Abraham got a deed. He got part of the land. This is about the land. This is about Abraham believing God's promise. So, let me summarize this and make some suggestions. The sum of the chapter is simple. When Sarah died, Abraham purchased a burial place in the land of Canaan as a demonstration that he believed God would fulfill his promise and ultimately give him the land. Now, let me uh, make a couple of suggestions. I started out saying, how do you handle the death of a loved one? And I would like to, from this chapter, I've got a Bible to back me up, make three suggestions. Number one, you mourn. Don't be ashamed to mourn. I talked about that earlier. Just want to repeat it. You need to cry. If you feel like crying, cry. If you don't feel like crying, don't cry. But deal with it. Mourn. I think it's as healthy to talk about it. Uh, for a number of years, uh, 10, I was on call at uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery. If you go to Forest Lawn and you don't have a pastor and you would like a pastor to help conduct the service, they, I don't know if they still have it, but they had a Rolodex. And I was in the Rolodex, and they would try to match the pastor with the person needing his services. And I was on call. If somebody needed a pastor, I would go. And uh, so, I don't know, I think I collect, uh, collected, I conducted somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 services over the past of about 10 years. One of the things I noticed was this. 
I don't remember them doing this uh, in Florida when I grew up. I don't remember them doing this in Texas where I went to seminary and pastored while I was in seminary. But when I got to California, I discovered that it was pretty common for people to talk about what they remembered about the person. And I locked into that and said, that is a great idea. In my experience of conducting, I don't know, scores in the neighborhood of 200 services just at Forest Lawn, not to mention what I've done as a pastor besides, I think one of the most beneficial things I've ever seen done is we just, instead of listening to me speak, throw it open and say, tell us what you remember about this person. And I've had person after person after person come to me and say, that was so meaningful. They got to talk and they got to listen. And it was just healing. That was a part of the grieving process. So I urge you, don't clam up, speak up, talk. That's a good thing to do. Choose the right person to talk to, but do it. Number two, can you imagine what I'm going to say next? If you've been listening to me for any period of time at all and can't guess what I'm going to say next, I'm going to feel like a miserable failure. What's the second thing I'm going to tell you to do? Buy a piece of burial property, right? Let me tell you how I learned that. I'm a pastor. I've been through this over and over and over again. You don't want to wait until the person dies to take care of this. The more details you can take care of before you die, the better. A simple illustration is the husband dies, and then the wife, on top of grieving, has to go to the funeral home, pick out a casket, plan a service, buy a piece of property. It's insane. I've gone to the funeral home with people that just were not prepared to deal with the trauma that's involved. So the more of those details that you can take care of, the better. And I urge you to do that. And I'm not selling cemetery property. I'm, I'm telling you this I got Bible on this now. <laughs> Abraham, of all people, did it, and we should be like Abraham. Only we should not be like Abraham. You just contradicted yourself. I thought you said be like, I did. Well, then you say don't be like Abraham. Right, he waited till after she died. Don't be like Abraham and wait till they die, or you die. Do it now. Do it before. But it's Boy, I've got Bible. It's biblical to say you should buy a piece of cemetery property. Amen? Amen. Amen. I have a third thing to say, and it is the point of this passage. If you miss this, you miss the passage. The first thing is mourn. The second thing is to purchase property, preferably before it's needed. And the third thing is when it happens that you lose a loved one who knows the Lord, that's the time to proclaim your faith. The very act 
of buying the property and burying Sarah in the land was a way that Abraham proclaimed his faith that the Lord promised him something and he believed the promise. The significance of this chapter then is that it demonstrates Abraham's faith in the face of death. It could have been reported very briefly, but it's not. Rather, this report is rather lengthy. So the very act of buying the property is an act of outstanding faith on Abraham's part. It be, demonstrates that he believed the promise of God. So, when somebody passes away that knows the Lord, can I put it like this? Crow about it. Proclaim it. That's the time to let everybody know that there is hope. And that's what's going on in this passage. One author said, the time of death should not be the time when the, the time of death should be the time when the godly proclaim their faith most loudly in view of their hope in God's promises. Amen. Can't say it any better. May I repeat it? The time of death should be the time when the godly proclaim their faith most loudly in view of their hope in God's promise. So this is the time to say, I'm grieved, I mourn, I weep, but not like others that have no hope, because I know, because I have trusted Jesus Christ, that I have eternal life, and this person who passed away has the gift of eternal life. I just mentioned that I conducted a lot of services for Forest Lawn. I guess these aren't people that are church members. They didn't have a pastor. They wouldn't have called me. Most of them were not Christians. Uh, probably very few of them were. And so I was faced with the issue early. What do I do? What do I say? The whole point of calling me is I conduct the service, but I speak. I open the Bible and I say something from the scripture. So what do I do? Do you duck the issue or do you hit it head on? Well, I'm going to tell you what I chose to do. I decided there is no better opportunity in the whole world to tell people that there's life after death than at a funeral. Right? So I decided I'm not going to duck the issue. I'm going to be as diplomatic and as gentle, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove as I can be. But this is the time. Of all times, this is the time to tell people that Jesus Christ died for the sin of the world. He arose from the dead. And if you but trust him, God will give you the gift of eternal life. So I figured out a way in the providence of God how to do that without being offensive and without being real aggressive, but I did it. 
And all those funerals, I had people come up and say to me, wow, thank you. Only, I can only remember one time, one time, uh, somebody came to me and said, do you always do that? And I said, yep. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. The only time I ever got anybody mad at me was one lady, uh, husband was cremated, and we all got on a ship, a boat, went out to the Pacific, and they were going to throw the ashes in the ocean, and she wanted me to pray for her husband. And I said, I can't do that. You don't pray for people after they die. You pray for people before they die. I can't pray for a dead person. There's no, she really didn't like that. She really got upset with me. But they didn't get upset with me for telling them, look, we, of all people, have hope. We believe that there's eternal life. So that is the time to tell it. And if it's done wisely, it does not offend people. It ministers to them. And that's the story of Abraham burying his wife in the land of Palestine. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the insight of how we can handle death. Give us the grace to do it. Not just to buy a piece of dirt, but to tell people that there's life after that and that the hope is in Jesus Christ. Give us the grace to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.